You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 24. It's the entirety of Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the, wor- the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon it the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the, to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading and sermon text today uh, is from the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood ransomed people for God, from every tribe and tongue, I'm sorry, tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray now that the most central declaration, the greatest news in all of the world, that our God reigns, it would, would be the mark of, of all of our teaching, of all of our singing, of all of our prayers, particularly for these next four weeks we'd consider what it means to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But what it means to believe that there is a throne in the heaven. But what it means to believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. To, to, to believe that that authority is, is not merely in some sort of religious realm or spiritual realm, but that authority extends into every square inch of reality. God, I pray that you would help us to believe these things, to confess these things, and in line with heaven, worship in light of these things. So come, God, and may our meditations on your word be fruitful today. God, may they stir us to love and delight in you and your law. God, may they be fruitful in our city, in our state, God, as those who don't know you, those who are dead in their sins and their rebellion against you, God, that they would be made alive. May your name be worshipped above all else. In your name we pray, amen. The book of Judges is really dark. I don't know how much time you've spent kind of working through the Old Testament, um, but every year when I get to the book of Judges, uh, it is... um, it is, is not something I look forward to. It's like a David Lynch film. It's just dark, and then it gets darker, and then it ends up being just dark the entire time. Um, and the book of Judges comes to us like this. You have these moments of hope um, uh, that, these, that, that, that kind of highlight 
um, long extended seasons of rebellion and disobedience to God. The book of Judges was a, a season of time in the history of Israel in which God, sitting as their king, ruling as their king through his law, appointed judges. And judges were there merely to apply the law of God, to kind of um, help um, when there was an argument or, or disagreement um, among the people, um, to make sure the law was being applied rightly. And God would raise up judges. Um, this is the pattern you see repeated through the book of Judges. Um, when Israel would, would rebel against God, God would hand them over to their enemies. They'd be oppressed by their enemies. They would cry out to God for mercy and for help. He would appoint a judge who would go and conquer the enemies of God. And then Israel for a few years would, in, grateful to, in, in gratitude to God, worship him, but very, very quickly fall into rebellion again. Um, this, this cycle repeats itself over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And then you arrive at the end of the book of Judges and, and you have maybe the darkest moment in the whole book. Um, it's, a, it's a story of uncleanness, of guilt covering the entire land. As a man's concubine is murdered and in protest to the godlessness of Israel, and the rebellion against God, um, he sees that her body is spread all over the land, such that the entire land is marked by guilt, by sin, by death, and by uncleanness. And then the book of Judges ends with this turn of phrase that I want us to think on today because I think it informs why we're doing what we're doing over these next four weeks. If you're new here, we generally work our way straight through books of the Bible. Um, or study intently, kind of working through um, verse by verse texts of scripture. Um, but for the month of May, we're studying the theme of authority and power. The book of Judges ends with this verse, this confession, this testimony to where Israel stood. And it said, in those days, there was no king in Israel, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you have a land filled with death, with guilt, with shame, and we find out uh, in First and Second Samuel that the state of worship in Israel at this time was um, the priests themselves were were robbing the people and most of all robbing God, and, and so there was there was no place to worship faithfully. Um, there was no king to enforce the law of God, and the people went about doing what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. There was no law. Um, they did not worship God or acknowledge his authority, and so the land was filled with death, with uncleanness, and with shame. I find this uh, a dark omen for our time. But we live in a day and age in which the question of who's in charge, who are you to say that? By what authority could you say that or claim that or do that um, undergirds everything in our society. The great, um, the great high, high idol of our day, the great God worshiped by everyone is the God of self. I am my own Lord. I, and, and, and that expresses itself in a myriad of ways. Most notably, we've arrived now at a place in our society 
um, where, where the greatest value is I get to define myself, my own gender, my own sexuality, my own body, my own personhood. I am what I say I am. I, my identity is not something received from God. It's not something um, given to me in a vocation ordained by God, but rather I am God. It's rather than one God ruling all the world, one God that we all are answerable to, we have millions of them. Self-asserting their own authority to declare any objective reality, any truth that's true for everyone um, is, uh, is anathema and heresy in our day. We live in a day in which all men do what is right in their own eyes. And my fear, if we would have eyes to see it, is that such a life, such a culture, such a society will quickly devolve into shame, to guilt, to death. The uncleanness that marks the land and marks the people, the despair that marks the land and the marks the, that marks the people at the end of the book of Judges is the future of all those, all societies, all neighborhoods, all cities, all families, all people who refuse to bow the knee to, to the one true and living God. We live in a day and an age in which the current cultural mood, that of postmodern secularism, um, it begins with a fundamental claim about the nature of reality. The nature of that reality is that there is no nature to reality. And that is kind of the fundamental confession in our day, that reality is whatever you decide you would like to make of it. Therefore, morality is whatever you would choose to make of it. In fact, the only real consensus we can find in our day is that you cannot enforce your morality on someone else. Um, and your morality shouldn't harm other people um, so long as they're out of the womb. Um, there is a fundamental idea in our day in postmodern secularism um, that there is no grand story, there is no grand ethic, there is no code or law divinely ordained or ordered um, to which all men and all women are subject to. And so there's no one in charge. There's no one with real authority. And that leaves us in a pretty pickle. Because in a world where there is no divine authority, there's no truth or reality or grain to cut against or along with, um, all you have then is power and claims to power. So one of the things that we've seen unfold, particularly in accelerated ways um, over the last several years in popular culture, it's been um, happening in the academy for a while, um, is kind of the, the shift to see um, that all natural hierarchies, all hierarchies that have been traditionally held to or believed or um, kind of ordered society, that all of them are simply ploys, plays um, put in place by those who have power in order to maintain their power um, over against um, the ones that they're taking advantage of. And so what's developing in our culture and accelerating rapidly is an incredibly cynical view of history, an incredibly, an incredibly cynical view of leadership. Any claims to authority are, are, are not 
um, are not real. They're, 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 they're simply someone trying to gain power and to leverage that power for their own comfort, their own will, their own good, their own name, their own glory, their own wealth. That the history of Western society has been defined by um, not the, the right and wrong use or responsible or irresponsible use of, of authority, but rather as a constant game of power, generally won by straight white men. In other words, we live in a day and age where in rejecting the notion that there's authority and rejecting the notion that there's real divine responsibility, that all men, anyone who, um, all men, all women, all children, all people are subject to God, subject to his law, um, answerable to him, and that he's ordered the world in such a way um, that, that there are authority structures, there are real hierarchies that are accountable to God. What you're left with is no real accountability, no real authority, and simply all those who are trying to leverage power, to tell stories, to assert theologies, um, to um, espouse policies, um, to tell history, to tell stories, all of it, none of it, for good purposes, none of it, accountable to God, all of it, merely a ploy for power. So postmodernism in our culture, which has is, is gone popular now, It's the idea that we should and must deconstruct all narratives, deconstruct all theologies, deconstruct all systematic theologies, deconstruct all histories to try to get to the bottom of who here is trying to win. That becomes the meaning, which is meaninglessness in our world. The result of this, this kind of all men simply did what was right in their own eyes is death and shame and guilt and division. Everything marked by a rebellion against the order that God has made, the order that God has designed, and a rebellion against life itself. So for these four weeks, we want to examine those claims. We want to examine those claims and we want to place next to them the claims made on us by Scripture. That the world that is um, described for us in the Bible, we confess and believe as Christians to be true. But not only do we confess and believe it to be true, we actually believe it to be good, to be best. That the way that we would flourish, the way that we would know the glory of God and the beauty of God, the way that all peoples and all tribes and all tongues and all nations from every socioeconomic background, um, all, all, all the various shades of skin, um, that the, the answer to the need of, of the human condition um, is, is not... Uh, mere autonomous freedom. It's not to be free of all stories. It's not to be free of all hierarchies. It's not to be free um, of all historical claims. It's not to be free of all theologies, but rather it is to be subject to the living God. The answer to the abuse of power and authority is not to get rid of all hierarchies. It's not to get rid of all power and all authority, but rather um, that they would all be ordered according to God's word. So for the next four weeks, we want to take um, first today the nature of the world, 
Next week, we're going to take up um, the issue, the question uh, of what is a government for? What is a magistrate for? How does, how does their power, um, their authority reflect the authority of God? How is it supposed to? Then we're going to look at the authority structures in the church. How does the hierarchy that God has established in the church, how, how is that um, designed and accountable to God and, and meant to reflect his authority in the world? And in the final week, and we're going to talk about husbands and fathers and mothers and children and families and the structure of authority that's been in place there. And here's my hope and my prayer. Um, that, that what is unbelievably central to the biblical testimony of what's true about the world and what God's people are to believe, one that you, it, would, it, would, it would find its way back to the center for us. Our mission statement or vision statement as a church is that we would um, celebrate and, and, and proclaim the good reign of Jesus. We believe that reign is the central message of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's the other thing that we believe, that it's good. It is absolutely good. And frankly, that there's goodness to be found nowhere else. If we are left to our own desires and our own devices and our own authority, if we try to organize marriage according to our own thinking, our own feeling, if we try to organize worship according to our own feeling, our own desires, if we try to organize how we raise our children according to our own thinking, our own desires, that leads to death. It leads to destruction. Oh, but if we would be subject to the living God, knowing his love, knowing his grace, his mercy, and then ordering our lives according to his word, ordering our marriages according to his word, organizing society according to his word, organizing our churches and our worship according to his word, I think what we'll find is life and beauty and goodness. So this is where we're going to go the next four weeks and where we're going to go today. So the first thing I want us to see is um, as, we, as we think about and we talk about um, the central claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, I don't want you to just um, take my word for it. I just want to show you a pattern that unfolds in the book of Acts. Um, and, and, and I would encourage you even write this down. Um, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 15, Acts 17. I could go further. But, but these chapters are all places where um, the apostles are preaching the message of Jesus um, in a variety of cultures. So in Acts 2, you have it happening um, in Jerusalem as people from gathered all over, um, all over the Mediterranean. All these Jews have gathered in Jerusalem um, for Pentecost. Um, and Peter stands up and proclaims a message. And one of the, the central themes of that message is the authority of Jesus. You go to Acts, you go to Acts chapter 10, find again the message of the gospel being preached, um, this time to Gentiles. What's the central message of that gospel declaration? The authority of Jesus. See it again in Acts 15, in Acts 17. Um, wherever the gospel went, it was not first and foremost, um, a kind of a religious system about a set of do's and don'ts. Um, it wasn't even 
um, in the first place, primarily a message um, about how to be reconciled with God. That, that was the second question. The first question was the declaration of the identity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the role of Jesus. You see this in a place like Romans, as Paul begins by declaring um, that, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God, declared to be the King, declared to be Lord and Messiah. How? By the, on the basis of his resurrection from the dead. And so the church went everywhere in the book of Acts, declaring that God had raised Jesus from the dead, and therefore Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, Jesus has all authority and will return to judge the earth. And when you announce that, it creates a problem. Right? You announce to a room full of people, Jesus is Lord and King and God, and one day he will return to judge the earth. I hope you see the problem. And you see it in in Acts 2. These people hear Peter proclaiming this gospel about Jesus. He gets to kind of really throw the zinger in there. It's like, you killed him. (laughs) And then the question that comes back before he's ever spoken about reconciliation with God is it says the people pleaded with him. They asked him, what do we do? They see the problem. If Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King and Jesus is returning to judge the earth, um, like if we're honest as we sit in this room, we're a mess. We deserve to be judged. And so then the message would come, here is how to be reconciled to God. So that judgment is good news, not bad news. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died on the cross for our sins and in our place. So we find ourselves engaged with a culture, a world in which Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And we've been given a message in the church that centrally and and places a priority on the declaration of the authority of Jesus Christ over the nations. The authority of Jesus Christ over everyone. In other words, where we find ourselves right now, where we find ourselves um, in this day, is in, in, in this moment as Christians, is standing in a world that, that, is, that is drowning in its own autonomy. It's drowning in its refusal to acknowledge any objective truth, any objective authority. Cynical of any word that comes declaring or claiming a unique and and divine kind of authority. And yet God commands us to stand in a world like that one and to confess with our heart, our mouth, and to believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, this is amazing. To, To stand in the midst of neighborhoods and cities in a culture that's slowly descending into shame and guilt and death. Frankly, I think some of our neighbors who don't believe in Jesus, have never believed in Jesus, are beginning to wake up and realize that whatever this world is doesn't work. With a handful of guys from our church to listen to Jordan Peterson speak um, six, maybe six, seven weeks ago. 
What's fascinating about Jordan Peterson is, um, well, well, first, like, there was 5,000 people in that room. Like, sold out downtown Denver. And one of the, the, the basic things that Jordan Peterson says, and, and, and I say it's basic because it's really basic. He's not a Christian. I think he's on his way. Is he simply asserts that the world has a structure. Like it has a way that it actually works. It's not that complicated of a claim. It's actually kind of boring. He essentially, in other words, says like, Hey, the world works a certain way and doesn't work another way. In other words, you, you, um, you should acknowledge and understand that the world is ordered. It has a grain in which you can cut along with that grain or you can cut against that grain. Um, and you should organize your life in such a way that you're cutting with the grain. You're not um, going against the way that the world is or the way that the world is designed. And what was just stunning was 5,000 people came to hear that there is such a thing as reality. Like that weird? Like he, he stood and I think I actually mentioned this before, but he, he, he essentially told people like, hey, you should get a job and you should work hard and you should get married and you should really work on your marriage and you should have kids because this is the way the world is. I think we're living in a moment and a time in which confessing the lordship of Jesus, in other words, confessing and believing and living like the world is a certain way and that we find out how the world actually is from a book um, and that that world is ordered by a God who designed it, who reigns over it, um, is um, redeeming it through the work of Jesus, that living in a moment like this one, standing, embodying in our culture together, in our life together, in our families together, embodying in our worship, um, the fact that, that the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is the most glorious, hopeful message imaginable in our time. Because we live in a day in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Such a thing only leads to death. So I want us to look now at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Um, it's going to be a brief look at Revelation 4 and 5. I would love to come back as a church and go back through the book of Revelation. But today I want to just look at the world as it's described in Revelation 4 and 5. And so I'm going to kind of set this up. I, I want to um, kind of give a context or kind of give away the house in, like, in terms of telling you what's happening in these two chapters. Revelation 4 describes the nature of the universe as it always is. In other words, it's a, um, it, John is walking into a scene that keeps going and going and going and going and never stopping. And then you turn to Revelation chapter 5, and John is describing action that unfolds, that actually has unfolded a long time ago. It unfolded at the ascension of Jesus. So if you want to know kind of the other side of Acts chapter 1 or Daniel chapter 7, um, uh, what, what, what's described for us in Revelation chapter 5 is what happens after the disciples stop being able to see Jesus um, as he ascends after the resurrection. So what happens on the other side beyond the clouds that they, um, they can no longer see Jesus of is this, that um, uh, Jesus comes um, into the throne room of God 
receives the scroll and begins to unfold or, or, or execute the will and the plan of God. And so um, the way that Romans, uh, Revelation 4 and 5 works is Revelation 4 is a description of here's the nature of the universe. And Revelation 5 is, and here is some, some, uh, something momentous that has taken place in history uh, around um, the ascension of Jesus. And then what unfolds in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and on, so on and so forth, um, is the unfolding of the execution of God's plan to bring judgment against Jerusalem and to send the gospel and his people into the nations. So that's how things are set up. And so um, I want us to look at and take note of just a handful of things from these two chapters and then we'll be done. Are you ready? In 15 minutes or less, maybe three minutes or less. Somewhere between three and 15 minutes. All right. So first, this scene. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. That was what happened when we came into this room this morning. Um, God called us um, and he threw up a door, threw open a door in heaven. And the first voice, which is the voice of Jesus, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. I find it as a complete aside wonderful to imagine the voice of Jesus every Sunday saying, get up here. But not like mean, like I'm mad at my son. Like, get up here. You gotta see this. Which is exactly what's happening right here. So so I know we talked about it at the beginning. I I just wanna mention it again. Hear the voice of Jesus every call to worship calling you to get up here, to come and see. What should we see? At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. At the center of reality, the center of the universe, the center of all of history, is a throne and one who is seated on that throne. The most basic and foundational thing that you and I can know and that anyone can know about the nature of the universe is that there is at the center of it a throne and that throne marks authority, it marks power, it marks the deserving of glory and honor and praise and worship and obedience. At the center of everything that is, is a throne with one who is seated on that throne to whom we owe all allegiance, all praise, all obedience, all glory. The center of everything, not, not just for the kind of this religious belief system over here for this major world religion called Christianity. For those of us, there's a throne. Not a throne that just kind of sits in your own heart. Jesus is Lord of me and my heart. It's not the picture in Revelation 4. The picture in Revelation 4 is at the center of all of space and time. Over every living thing that has ever lived that lives now and will ever live. 
is a God who has authority over all of it. So if you're here this morning, perhaps you're not sure about Christianity, maybe you were hoping we had really great coffee, you felt rude taking the coffee and leaving, so you just sat down, glad you're here. Here's the the first thing that Revelation 4 would say to you. God has authority over you. You are accountable to him. It doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not. All people everywhere from all time are answerable to him. He he rules over every square inch of this universe. He is God and King and Lord and Judge. Jesus, in his final statements to his disciples, um, in commissioning them to go and disciple the nations, which is crazy. Like these 11, I want you to go and teach all the nations, not individuals out of the nations, but the nations to obey everything I commanded. Like that's what Jesus sends them to do. That's crazy. But before he does that, he grounds that command in a claim. And that claim is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. You have this statement in heaven and on earth, which is to say everything. All authority over everything and everyone and everywhere has been given to Jesus by the one who is seated on the throne. Therefore, go. Disciple the nations, teach them, baptize them, teach them to do everything I've commanded. So a handful of considerations. First, what John goes on to describe in Revelation 4, you have all these stones and people have done a lot of things with what these stones symbolize. They symbolize some really important things about the nature of, it links um, the throne room of God with the temple and the the high priest and his garments. It links the the heavenly of heavenlies. It it, it links where God dwells in this throne room um, with the holy of holies and the curtains and and, and even um, the way that that room was designed. But here's just a really basic point. At the center of reality is a throne and that throne is marked most deeply by beauty and noise and glory and singing and, and, and just sheer overwhelming majesty. We're going to get to grace and mercy in a minute. But, but beauty is defined by center of the throne. 
carnelian and emeralds. I mean, it is sheer noise and light and color and beauty and sound and singing. Harps. I heard D.A. Carson one time say that harps here, you shouldn't think of like those nice harps. You should think of them as banjos. I like that. I don't know if it's true, but I like it. Like at the center of reality is not ugliness. At the center of reality is not darkness. At the center of reality is not hopelessness. At the center of reality is light and beauty and music and glory such that you could not stand it to see it merely with these eyes. The center of the universe is beautiful and glorious. Um, the, 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 the one who rules God Almighty, who sits on the throne, um, is surrounded by beauty and light and glory. It is a glory that is overwhelming. It is a glory that, um, that will strike fear into you. It is a glory that is holy. It is a glory that is perfectly just, just and righteous. Um, it is a glory that is perfectly and totally pure. But it is a glory nonetheless. If you long for beauty, you must long for the lordship of God. To see it, to know it, to submit to it. His lordship, that throne, that authority um, being reproduced in the world as men and women submit to him and love him and delight in him. That's where all the beauty comes from. So first, the center of the universe is a throne. Second, the center of the universe is a throne surrounded by, covered in beauty. Implication of the fact that there is the center of the universe, a throne. Not only is there beauty, not only is there worship and joy, but it means that there is one fundamental question in the universe Who will you serve? Choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. How long, O Christian, will you waffle between opinions? How long, O Christian, will you strive to find a middle, peaceable way? The claim of God and the claim of Jesus on this world and on your life and and the, the claim that he insists, demands of us in the midst of living in a world like this one is not divided allegiances. It is not kind of lukewarmness, kind of tossing back and forth between multiple opinions about what goodness is, what righteousness is, what sin is, what beauty is. No, it is an absolute and total allegiance to the one who is seated on the throne. And for far too long, Christians have held out a kind of middle way, 
constantly taking the, the Overton window from the world of what's acceptable in the world and trying to navigate it kind of um, passively, trying to navigate it by being soft-spoken, trying to navigate it by not being too allegiant to Jesus. And let me tell you, that is the opposite of what the Bible calls us to. What it calls us to is an absolute joy-filled allegiance to the authority of Jesus and his word. There is at the center of reality a throne a call to confess and to believe and to delight in and to love the authority of Jesus over and against every other claim to authority. Second, the authority of God is grounded in two things, Revelation 4 and then moving to 5. First, in his creation of everything. Therefore, he, he not only um, has rights to everything because he made it. Like if I take clay and I make a really nice teapot and you grab it and you use it as a hammer, you violated my authority over that clay pot unless I gave it to you. Then if you want to use it as a hammer, be my guest. God made the world, therefore he has designed the world, therefore he has rights to this world to tell us what it's for. What every breath you breathe is for. What your body is for. What your money is for. What your job is for. What marriage is for. What raising children is for. He has that kind of authority because he made everything. And he's really smart. So not only does he possess authority because he owns it, because he made it, he also possesses, possesses authority because he's smarter than you and me. The author of Proverbs tells us that there's a way that seems right to man and the end will lead to death. There's a way that you think you should use that clay teapot. And if you use it that way, it will break. But if you use it the way that God has designed, the way that he's ordered, which is what you see, and that, that's, that's what the law of God is. It's what the wisdom of God is. It's God graciously revealing to us, here's how the world is designed to work. The world that I made, that I own, that I possess all authority over. You can cut with that grain or against that grain. Um, And so the first thing to see is in Revelation 4, um, the, the worship of all the saints the worship of all of creation comes and is offered to God and his authority is grounded in the fact that he made everything. But secondly, I mean, you see in Revelation chapter five, um, Jesus comes, you have this scroll, the scroll represents the will of God, represents the law of God, it, um, it represents all the promises of God um, being executed, unfolded, put, to, put, put in place in the world um, and This crisis hits at the beginning of five. Nobody can open the scroll, which is to say nobody can bring God's promises to bear to fruition in the world. It means nobody can see the glory of God fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. It means nobody is worthy to see the law of God um, executed and fulfilled in the world. And the answer that comes is this lion of Judah that's a slaughtered lamb. We're going to come back to that in a second. And then worship erupts as he takes that scroll, as he claims the right and the authority to do it. Authority is then acknowledged to belong to him, to Jesus. He's the one that executes or fulfills or puts into 
puts into practice the authority of the one seated on the throne. And what's that grounded in? Why is he given authority to do that? Because it says in verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Um, Do you see the connection? Here is um, the one seated on the throne who possesses all authority over heaven and earth. And then he has a plan. He wants to see his plan fulfilled. He wants to see the world filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, filled with beauty and goodness and majesty, filled with justice and righteousness, that that the law of God would be put into place um, such that the world would be filled with the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and the majesty of God. And there's no one to do it because we've rebelled against that authority. There's one named Jesus who is declared worthy to unfold that plan, that purpose. Why? Because with his blood, he purchased men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation. So he possesses authority. Um, The authority of the one seated on the throne is grounded in creation itself. And the authority of Jesus is grounded in the fact that he died for our sins and rose again on the third day. So all the authority of God is given to the Son. The Son then commands and commissions other people to bear his authority in different ways in the world, there is a way that the world is, and this is beautiful. It is grounded in, however this world is, it is grounded in the reality that the one who rules, the one who possesses authority, died to make it that way. Purchased us, redeemed us, washed us. In other words, here is a king who doesn't just rule righteously, but graciously. Here is a king who is king not simply by rights of of birth order, not simply by rights of even having made the world. Here is a king who is king because with his blood he purchased us. He washed us. He dealt with our sins that we might be children of God, that we might rule with him. The image of this one who takes the scroll, this Jesus, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a royal claim. It's a claim that he is the son of David. He's the descendant of David. He is the one who rules and reigns. He is the one that conquers all the enemies of God. He's the one that destroys them. And he is a lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. 
Oh man, the rule of God is strong and fierce and true. Um, All men everywhere will answer to him. But here's the glory at the center of it all. In and through the work of Jesus, this slaughtered lamb, all can be forgiven. You can know the, the glory of this God, the beauty of this God, the order of the world that's created by this God. Um, your life can come um, and be under the rule and the reign of this God forever and ever and ever, confident that his blood has dealt with your sins, that you have been purchased and redeemed and cleansed and forgiven. So there is at the center of the world, at the universe, every square inch of reality, a throne. And that throne is surrounded by beauty and song and glory and honor. And his authority is executed on the earth through a lion who is a lamb who was slaughtered for the forgiveness of our sins and reigns now for the undoing of all evil, all wickedness, all sin, all death. And the call at the heart of the gospel is come, behold this Jesus, confess him as Lord, repent of your sins and know the forgiveness of God. Let's pray. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So, Father, we come now to the table of our King, the table of our Lord, the gracious and holy one who calls to us, get up here, that we might see that you are on your throne. No matter what claims are made in the state legislature, no matter what claims are made by governors or presidents or senators, no matter what claims are made by oligarchs, and, and by those who um, control billions of dollars and resources and oil and land and money um, and technology, no matter what kinds of claims are made in the world, um, you command us to come and to see that you are God and you are seated on your throne. And God, you invite us now to eat, to sit at the king's table and eat the king's food.